So, uh, hello everybody, and <laughs> welcome to MaydayCon 2020. Uh, I am your moderator, David Walters, and just wanted to kind of say a quick thank you for tuning in. Uh, so I'm the creator of the book review blog, fanfightedit.com, as well as the host of Authors on a Podcast, Talking Books, and, well, the creator of this virtual convention. But just a quick note, that since this is live, feel free to submit any questions, and I'll try to pick out some time, uh, or pick out some as time allows. But really, honestly, enough about me because I'm 99% sure you came to see all these people here. Uh, but let's begin with some introductions from our panel and we can get kind of right down to the nitty gritty. So, Gareth, if you want to take it away. Hello, uh, I'm Gareth Hunrahan. Uh, I'm a Russian game designer. The Russian part is the Gutter Prayer and the Channel Saint. I'm a shelf behind me. And the game design is an author of role playing games, which are actually maybe a little bit later on. But we'll see if it's not much. But anyway, that's me. It's backwards. RJ, go! I'm RJ Barker. I'm the author of the, the Wounded Kingdom books, which are here um, Age of Assassins, Blood of Assassins, and King of Assassins, and my new novel, The Burn Ships, which is here. My books are under the duck. Which we've all been laughing at. Um, uh, I'm I'm in West Yorkshire in the United Kingdom, uh, and Leeds, which everyone will agree is the best city in England. Sheffield is the best city in England, aren't they? Um, I'm gonna try going upstairs. And, I'll be back in a second. Yeah. Okay. It was my birthday this week, and I got some lovely wireless earbuds. So I don't have to mess my hair up with big headphones. So that, that's. <laughs> I thought ahead with, with planning my birthday gifts. <laughs> Matthew. <laughs> um, I'm Matthew Ward. I am author of Legacy of Ash, um, previously of uh, contributing to Warhammer War about the 40,000 universes to Games Workshop. And that's my introduction because I didn't think this through at all. So, uh, <laughs> Anna. Hi, I'm Anna Smith Spark. I'm the authors of, author of the Empire of Dust series. The Court of Broken Eyes, Tower Living, Dying House of Sacrifice. Uh, I am just outside London. I tweet as Green as Queen of Grimdark, so I probably should actually be on the next panel, but I wanted to talk about something else strange. An interesting fact about me. Um, I may be known to the Queen of England. Hey. And uh, Angus was here. <laughs> I, think we, I think we lost him for a bit. So Angus will be joining us here shortly. Uh, I think he's getting a better internet connection. So once he once he pops in, we'll uh, we'll really get the show started. But how's everybody doing this morning? I mean, it's it's pretty early for me uh, here in the states, but I know you guys are all uh, what like early afternoon. It's lunchtime, yeah, and me. so I've be, I've already been to Sainsbury's today, which was. Um, Experience since the last time I went to Sainsbury's two weeks ago. That was absolutely horrendous. They talk about magic systems, people blundering around thinking, yeah, I've got a picture of a rainbow in my front window. I mean, clearly that 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 just wards off all evil. I mean, you put a picture of a rainbow in your front window and you go out and clap on a Friday, Thursday night at eight o'clock for the NHS. A volcanic eruption, sudden appearance of a dinosaur, meet impact, in, asteroid impact, you're covered. You're completely safe at Bishop Stilford as long as you've got a picture of a rainbow in your window. I'm I'm staying in because I'm not allowed out. I'm fucking vulnerable. Isn't that I'm legally allowed out. I'm not like like um, on tag or anything. It just sounds um, worse. Yeah, no, it really does. <laughs> 
but but I, I'm I'm I've got an immunosuppressancy, so I'm I've got to be really careful. And basically, it, it's just like life keeps dealing me cards that I love. First of all, I wasn't allowed to eat health food and vegetables, and um, now I just have to stay in all the time. It's brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, maybe not working out as well for other people, but look on the bright side. Let's say you could, uh, you know, put put up some Christmas decorations. There's a lot of people in the states that are doing that for whatever reason. It's supposed to bring joy. Uh, so, like, I was driving, I was driving back in. I, I took my wife to the lake so she didn't have to sit and listen to me talk for 14 hours. Uh, and I was driving back, and it, all these people had Christmas lights up. I'm like, well, first it's May. Um, and uh, I mean, if that makes people happy, okay. <laughs> I, I, I think if you did that in the UK, there would be a lot of cutting. <laughs> well, already I've been trouble watching the what day it is of March last for 10 years. I mean, I don't discover it's Christmas. <laughs> Maybe if you hate the children, it's a really cruel trick. Uh, to get the children really excited about you know, actually, you know, six months at least. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, I guess while we wait on Angus to get situated in his other room with a better internet connection, uh, we can go ahead and start at least kind of on our main topic. So main topic for this panel, actually, Angus, just pop back up. There we go. Uh, moves. <laughs> <Hey. Hi. laughs> uh, hopefully that'll be a bit better yeah it should have worked fine so uh yeah so like i said so first real main topic who in here believes that magic systems are important to make great fantasy and why <laughs> <laughs> why did i know that reaction was going to happen <laughs> I mean, they're not inherently important. Like one can have great fantasy without a magic system. But in, in many cases, having some civilization in your magic can be beneficial. Um, I can barely hear you. Can, is anyone else find Gareth? That sounds like he's yeah. underwater. <laughs> Cutting it out. out. <laughs> Me, Gareth. Plot twist, he is underwater. I'll try it again. If that doesn't work, I shall take out headphones. I'm literally no idea what you just said, Gareth, basically. Yeah, I knew there were technical difficulties. I knew that was going to be a thing. So I think what Gareth just began by saying, which I completely agree with, although he may not have said this, but what I think he said was that. A great fantasy can have an amazing magic system. An amazing magic system can so what makes a fantasy novel great, but it's not a necessary currently. So some, I mean, I think I totally agree with that. Some, some absolutely amazing fantasy novels have quite developed, very developed, beautifully developed magic systems and the way the magic works and the kind of beautiful theoretical conceptual perfection of that magic system it's not. It's beautiful and really wonderful part of the book. In the same way that I don't know, a really beautiful equation is part of a and a well, it's beautiful explanation of that. It's part of a really good science book. At the same time, an absolutely amazing magic, amazing fantasy novel can have absolutely no worked out magic system at all. I have no idea how magic works in my own world. I have never thought about it at all. I don't explain it. I have no idea how it works. And that it, it depends on the book and the world. 
and what the author's doing and what the author's trying to do and what you're getting from the book, I guess. Is I think what Gareth was beginning to say. Have you made <laughs> no, that, 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 that sounds all excellent. Is that more audible? Oh, that's, that's, that's way better. Yay! Technology. What Anna said, basically. That, that's what I would have said had I been audible. <laughs> I think it's a really I weird thing, actually, because when I think about systems, I think about scientific processes. So the whole idea of a magic system to me is really, really weird because if you can empirically reproduce it, then it's not magic anymore. It's it's science. And I just find that a, a hard thing to engage with. Yeah, well, I, think um, it's what, I think that's what I mean. I think that's what I mean. It depends what you're trying to do. So some magic systems, the point is to almost kind of deconstruct the nature of magic, that it's not magic. Hmm science underpinning this you are almost creating an alternative scientific reality yes yeah, precisely that actually well, that's absolutely beautiful that sort of that attempt to impose some kind of scientific rationale and if it works and if you've got that spark that means it actually makes sense and you can say yeah that i get that you're almost you're I mean you're giving an entire kind of entire new ontology of the way your world works which is absolutely fascinating you know an entire different conception of conceptual universe with different rules of physics, basically, which is absolutely brilliant. But then on the other hand, yeah, if you're just kind of like, and for some obscure reason, eating metals means you have magic powers. Well, that I that kind of feels, yeah, you're kind of trying to get some kind of attempt to rationalise something by attempting to rationalise it. It's rather like those people who try and have all those lengthy arguments about, rather like the kind of Da Vinci Code stuff about what's going on. As soon as you try and kind of say, actually, that Jesus was a man and this is the secret code. You're actually taking all the the, mean, the mystery all and the meaning. Yeah. Yeah, you're taking all the out of it. Yeah. So it depends how it's done. Yeah. I, I, I suppose the, the equivalent in science fiction is that weird thing where you've got this this terrible tradition, particularly in the original series of Star Trek, where they go to a planet and then you have a godlike alien who can do whatever it likes. Which is the other way around because you're the, you're then using magic to explain your science almost, aren't you? It's yeah, so actually, so I was on, I was the cover article in um, the 14 Times talking about this, about how actually Von Daniken, Eric Von Daniken, all his stuff about the gods are actually aliens, alien beings with high technology. Actually, that's more, he is being more scientifically rational, I was arguing, than Richard Dawkins, because Richard Dawkins constantly falls back on all this stuff about chance and this kind of amazing sense of, you know, this incredible chance that the world is just where it was in the solar system and the solar system is just where it needs to be in the galaxy and water does this weird stuff and, you know, the temperature in this planet is just right and these little life forms evolved and then they became people and then they became Richard Dawkins, two people met and fell in love and one sperm and one egg produced Dawkins! And he's talking about, he in fact is absolutely just kind of fetishizing chance. And he in fact, deifies chance. Whereas, Dork, whereas Von Daniken is just saying, yeah, there are these dudes in spacesuits who came down from space and like it all works according to physics and biology and biochemistry. And I love that. I'm so proud of having done that, actually. I mean, just, yeah, I'm so proud of that article. <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm reading stuff that, that's got magic in it, I always end, and, and it gets explained at some point, that I always end up feeling kind of oh oh is that that because it kind of steals what is this big mystery and then the minute your big mystery is solved it's kind of oh it's not as 
sense of wonderish, which is what I like. I like that kind of, this is quite chaotic. I also don't like rules in general or being told what to do, even though, even when I'm doing it myself. So, and, and I'm incredibly lazy as well. So if I set up a magic system with hard rules, then I have to reference back to that first book all the time, which is the right pain when you're trying to write a book. So everything in my books is quite free flowing and chaotic because it's much easier, basically. <laughs> So, and so also, also RJ, I, no rules and lazy, yeah. lazy magic. <laughs> yes, yeah, basically. I mean, this in the Wounded Kingdom, there, there is there's one rule, which is that magic sucks the life out of the earth because you you need to for magic to work dramatically. You can't have it as a get out jail free card. You can't just use it whenever. There, there has to be some sort of break on it, otherwise. Yeah, I think that's actually why people often create magic systems, because, of course, what you're doing, it's the problem I had. By the time I've got to book three, I've got total war situation with a couple of mage lords and dragons and this all-powerful world conqueror figure. And you you have, yeah, with Matt, if you don't have rules and some kind of it drains the power out of the earth or your metals run out or whatever, you've got this, well, I've just invented the atom bomb. The next battle will just be, and then they just nuke everything, and they win. And you can that's that's why a lot of people have magic systems, I think, because you've got to have that. Basically, you've got to find some conceptual sense beyond. And then it mysteriously turns out the archmage had bumped his toe, and oh, was in bed with gout, Angus. You know, <laughs> at the morning, and the dragon was on You've got to have something that works a bit more convincingly. So, I mean, you can't just go cabal. We've just annihilated everybody and win because. Otherwise, your magic has to have a first. You, you end up with a kind of Superman scenario if your magic doesn't have a Marvel something. movie. Mm. Yeah. Angus, what are your thoughts? You're pretty quiet. Um, I don't think that <laughs> a magic drugs. system is ever going to be the best thing in a book. I don't think it'll ever make a book. I think um, of the elements that make up the book, um, character and plot are always going to be more important than a magic system. But it can add a great deal. I don't for a second think that it's uh, particularly important to have a defined magic system or any magic system at all in great fantasy. I think if you think of uh, the most popular fantasies, things like Game of Thrones, I mean, quite a lot of magic in Game of Thrones, but it's not what anybody thinks of when they think of Game of Thrones. They think of the characters and, and the world more. Um, yeah. It's almost, so like in, it's almost like intrusive yeah. magic. Absolutely, and I think we. I think uh, uh, do our editors all tell us that magic has to have a cost? Is that how it goes? Um, you know, someone ha magic has to be based on you know something has to die every time you use magic or something like that because uh, that's been drummed into me certainly. Um, I like that <laughs> idea because um, you can't just have like uh, this consistent magical source. <laughs> yeah, but I also think as a lazy author, magic is quite useful because you know, oh god, they're stuck in a jail underground. Uh, the volcano is erupting. There's lava coming towards them. How are they going to get out of it? Oh, well, magic will do it. <laughs> <laughs> magic or a secret door, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and they, they, they had to kill a rat or something to you know, death made magic or whatever it might be. Um, the flip side of it, though, is that if, if you have a society that has had magic and it plays a big part in their society in the way it works, you kind of would have, if not, you would have systems and you would have beliefs that are built all around it, even if they're they're kind of not real just just things which which i might put in a book later on now i've just thought of that i'm sure some's already done it but i, I quite like that idea because there's a logic to it 
I think that's what matters is the logic of, of your world, not not whether you have a system or not. Have a well, system. One question as well is, do you want to have that explicitly spelled out to the characters or like, you know, you, you, you could have like, you know, as one book where like, you know, your main character is a magician and he knows how magic works. And there's like a sort of explicit, like, you know, here, like the laws of magic, here is how things, here, like, you know, if one says these words, then this effect will happen. And it's a sort of quasi-science. Um, but you also have a book where, like, you know, the main character, the main character knows very little magic. And, like, you know, you've got these, like, you know, fairy lords off doing stuff. And they might say, like, oh, I cannot cross this running water or I cannot cast spells on someone with their coat being turned inside out. Is that a system or is that just, like, the other, like, you know, sticking rules on because it's dramatically convenient? Like, you know, is it still a system if, if, the, if the reader never knows how the system works but just sees the effects of it? Yeah, I, I, like think that I think it's deeper than that. I because that that's how my world works. That these kind of weird. I use a lot of mythology. I'm writing a kind of mythology rather. I'm writing very kind of. No, I'm not systemizing. I'm not world building. I'm writing a very. I'm writing a mythological world in which things don't necessarily make sense. And yeah, that kind of weirdness of. Well, that kind of you know something iron has certain powers. Or you have this charm that has certain powers, or you have these beings that exist and have certain powers, but there's no explanation for it. And I, that's what I really love about mythology. I love the kind of weirdness of Celtic mythology, of British. I, I read a lot of British folklore and folklore tradition, and that kind of weirdness about you can't really. A lot of it's inexplicable. I mean, people try and build stuff about well, iron has strange magic powers because that dates back from the Bronze Age. And kind of, or try, and people try and impose these rules on it. You know, the, the sword in the stone and the sword going back to the lake at the end of King Arthur. That's clearly related to Bronze Age and Iron Age sacrifice resource swords in the lakes. Well, maybe it does, but on the other hand, it you don't rationalise it. That weirdness of it, that it, it's a totally numinous world. It's a world in which things have a huge amount of power. Things have a kind of magical, godlike marvel to them. And the fact you don't understand why, you know, this you can almost grasp the rules. You can almost grasp the kind of meaning. You know, there's water, there's iron, stone. You almost grasp it, but you you can't. And that that for me is absolutely the heart of what a really really good book with a magical world within it. Mary Stewart does it absolutely amazingly in her Merlin trilogy. But you almost grasp the rules of the magic, but you can't. And that that as someone who studied anthropology, that makes that's just that makes sense in how actual real magical societies work and in fact how our own society works. But I, I feel I need to I need to know the magic myself in order to give that impression to the reader. So the reader can come away thinking, Oh, I've no idea how that magic works, but in order to write the book, you have to understand the magic system yourself so you know what you can do. Without seeming ridiculous or losing, you know, uh, suspense or disbelief. I did in, Are they I did in my first trilogy, but in the burn ships, uh, I've I've no idea how the magic works. But that's okay <laughs> because the, the people in it who I'm writing about have no idea how the magic works because humans don't do magic. Magic is done by a another species. Hang on. <laughs> Sorry, get to hear a bit of Slayer. Um, <laughs> um, so. So that that kind of works, and and it's to do with that logic. But what Anna was saying about these little geases, geases, I'm never sure how to say that word, geas, geas. Um, these little Every rules word. and yeah, and things that that work with magic. That I think that's they're lovely because they're very our world. Like 
I, I was on Twitter talking about magpies. Uh, when you see one magpie, I say morning general, or I say, how are you? So I don't get bad luck. I don't believe in bad luck at all, but I do that and I don't walk on three grates in a street. And there are all these little rules that we all live our life by that are not a system as such, but but they are kind of the everyday magic of our life. And I think that really works when you put it into a book, these little little sort of hints of, of things going on in the background. I love stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of richness is what really makes the world. And I kind of say, I say I don't understand how any of that works in my world, but I think I kind of, so my world is so much built up on my own subconscious. I think I don't understand it. It's absolutely imbues the way I see the world. It's the way I see the world, I guess, just written down. Well, it's almost that you don't see the the magic itself, but you do see its reflection in everything else that's going on in the world. And I think I think that's hugely important because because everything that Arjo was just saying is that even in our decidedly probably touch what non magical world, we still have these bits and pieces that bleed through into how we behave and interact with things. And when you get into a situation where people can, you know, blow things up with magic or heal people or raise the dead or whatever that will then trickle through into everything that goes on. And that's that's the more of the system I'm interested in, I guess, if we want to bring it back to that, is about how that then shapes the society beyond it. And you can see that, and it becomes that mirror you hold up to the magic that no one understands. So, so we are, um, silence everyone, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody just be silent whenever Matthew answers up. Yeah. Um, all right, so... As far as putting magic systems into a fantasy novel, I mean, I know you all do it completely differently. Some are intrusive. Some actually have fairly complex systems. Um, do you feel that it needs to be complex to be interesting? And what I mean by that is, you know, most magic systems today aren't just fireballs and magic missiles. Uh, some require different elements. Others require drugs or hallucinations. Some need specific jewelry and others have major costs associated with their uses so do you think it needs to be complex do you feel like intrusive is enough uh or really does it just depend on how you want to introduce it to the world i don't really do think complex so i don't i don't want it to be complex i don't want to have to <laughs> think really hard and work out exactly how the magic's working um having said that i mean for example uh brian mcclellan's powder mage novels have quite complicated magic with the use of gunpowder and i do love those um but generally i think you want to keep the magic a bit in the background and not unless you're a sort of nerdy sort of super star trek fan who likes to know the very nitty-gritty of the thing in which case you're going to enjoy a very complex magic system but i'm not like that yeah but it, it depends often on, on the sort of the style of book you want to write like there was a fantastic um, pair of books. I, I, the author is escaping me right now. There's one called Master of the Five Magics, which is basically this guy, who, this world has like five different magic systems, and this guy becomes the archway mastering all five of them. There's alchemy, sorcery, conjuring, and so forth. But the other book then, Secret of the Sixth Magic, is about metamagic. And basically this evil guy shows up who can unlock the laws of magic and change them. So instead of like you know alchemy working off the principle of sympathy, where like you know if you have like you know a doll of someone and like you know stick pins that they go ah sort of like voodoo esque thing, he changes so it's to like the principle of contagion or something where you have to like you know some item of theirs and they get changed again as the principle of similarity where you go to the statue of someone and basically each magic is defined by this like your know, one rule and this guy can change the rules and that really plays the whole idea of like magic systems as here is the rule here's the cost to cast a spell. What if we change it? 
which is taking the whole like, magic system to the extreme. I've always thought it'd be tremendous fun to write something where the magic system is the more drunk you get, the more powerful you become. <laughs> but, but also, <laughs> obviously, the, the more terrifying you become as well because you're not in control of that thing. Um, there's a game, a, like. yeah, there's, well, there's a role playing game called um, Honor Armies where that's one of the magic systems. Dipsomancy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, like different, the different like alcohol types like give you more yeah. or less depending on their. Potency. No, it, it, it's it's based on famous drinks. So like, you know, if you drink like you know, the Cascalo Antelado or like you know, steal Elvis's last drink, that gives you extra magic power. And you can like just. <laughs> <laughs> but I. I, I, I'm I totally off topic. I'm now reminded of the book I started reading over someone's um, shoulder on the tube, which contained the immortal line, they are like normal vampires, but they're beer vampires. <laughs> <laughs> One benefit of having a sort of complicated magic system is that it lets you sort of extrapolate stuff. Like, you know, if you do a magic system based on constellations say and you have like you know, a dozen constellations in your world and your main character can draw power from the constellation of the sword and that's just basically your gimmick for having this guy having magic sword then you can sort of like you know, in like later on go okay i've got eleven other constellations what are they given my system specifically says like you know there other people must have powers from the other constellations you can sort of like follow your own rules um which could be a useful way of inspiring yourself or also like you know write yourself to horrible corners because you've established that is that thing we take a step back and go, but this thing that needs to happen now can't happen because of the thing that I put in the magic system <laughs> earlier on and yes. uh, no, it's, it's that simplicity is really really it's, I think if your your plot revolves around the intricacies of how various magic orders or whatever uh, mesh together then I think uh, Yes, I, I think having that kind of structure is great, but I think most of the time where it's just part of the world, but if you've got other things going on in the world, it's simplicity always for me, I'm afraid. I mean, it's, it really it comes back to it really depends what kind of book you're writing, what you're trying to do. So, um, I mean, I'm one, I am one of those totally nerdy people who loves all the, I love all the kind of world building, the explanation, in some ways, I, I love reading fantasy novels as essentially, I've read ancient, I've studied lots of ancient history. Hey, here's a whole other new culture. I can study their, I can study their history. And that's one of the reasons, that's one of the major things I love about fantasy. So someone like when Steve, R. R. Scott Baker, when he has all his appendices and his explanations and the kind of stuff at the back, I love all that. So I love the, the detail he's gone into, you know, when people do dictionaries and when people do really complicated stuff about the magic, I love that in the sense of this is a really gripping story but this is gosh this is just another this is another anthropology textbook i can really get into it's just the world doesn't exist and that means it can be even more amazing and more spectacular i mean i love the way baker does his different schools of magic and there's all his actual stuff about how it works i love that stuff but that isn't what i want to do i mean i if i had 10 years i would love to do something like that but i just want the time and the patience i'm in all did it all but um and then you get someone like mike fletcher who is an author again who i hugely admire and his manifest illusions world where he basically has this kind of if you if you have this if you have a psychosis it becomes real so he's talking about 
he's he's basically talking about someone like Trump. He's talking about someone who's by the fact that they are like, yeah, I'm I'm this amazing, I'm a Superman. Somehow that delusion somehow means that it, it becomes real. And the way his his he has a his magic system is entirely based around the strength of one's delusions. And it's a beautiful way of pointing out, in fact, the insanity of one's own world. His books are by doing this, it's an incredibly political way of talking about not actually about talking about how fucked up most of us are, how troubled most of us are, how how messed up the world is. And it, it, it's just beautiful. But again, that's not what I am interested in doing in my books. It's just, it's, it's whatever works to give that book a talk. It's whatever just kind of gives that book something in a different way. Yeah. And by the way, uh, everybody can feel free to express their opinions. We're not, uh, this isn't for 18 and younger audience. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, uh, so I actually, Misty sent me a question to ask which author have I read that had a very creative magic system. I have to agree with Angus. Uh, McClellan's Powder Mage series, the you know ability to snort gunpowder and direct bullets. I mean, that kind of blew my mind when I first read it. Granted, I am still kind of a, a, a noob, I guess you can say, when it comes to fantasy. I mean, I've only been reading it for the past few years and a majority of it has just been like orbit centered. So, so, you know, all of you guys, <laughs> so they're a very um, good publisher. I've heard. Yeah. They're, you know, they're, they're pretty decent, I guess. So, um, but uh, yeah, so, so kind of next question. So if magic isn't the end all be all when it comes to make a great fantasy novel, I mean, what would you say is the main thing that you need in a book? Would it be the characters? Is it world building? Is it giant chaotic battles, good versus evil, just wanting to engage the reader or none or all of the above? It's it's people. You have you have to have people and, and you have to have people that the reader can care about. Because if you don't have that, nothing else at us, you're just look you may as well be looking at a pretty picture. Because that's what, what when I'm reading a book, it's because of that person, whether I like them or not. Is, is immaterial, but I, I need to have locked into them, be interested in them, and everything else. Just sort of magic for me is is a way of affecting the character, so the reader thinks, "Oh gosh, this is happening," rather than a way of the character affecting the world. If that makes sense, probably doesn't. But I often don't. That, <laughs> that that's how I I think of it, and, and I don't I don't see in in genres. I don't think about fantasy or science fiction or crime. I, I think that's just dresses for stories i think you you write about people and then use all these little ingredients that are around to, to make those stories interesting in in different ways and magic is quite quite fun and, and i often use magic as a a metaphor for money it, it, well, magic power. is power and you yeah. and it, yeah. a lot of times you have these sort of old money who've been magical for ages and stuff like that and, and in the wounded kingdom books magic is oil it, it's quite Quite sort of upfront this it's an ecological allegory and magic destroys the world um and that creates a position but it's that's all immaterial because it is all about this boy growing up in his relationship with his mother because that that's what's interesting in it and that's what holds people in <laughs> <laughs> for me <laughs> um, I, I agree that characters are most important and i've been listening to lots of non-fiction recently i've been listening to john ronson's books which i strongly recommend and I sort of listen, I'm listening to them because I like him as a narrator. He's got a very distinctive style and he's very self-deprecating in a genuine way. 
Um, so even though his books are non-fiction and they change from subject to subject, I, I keep reading them because I care about him. Um, but I do think that you can have a book that works on plot over character. Uh, I mean, it's a crap book, but it can be readable and it can work if it's got suspense and you care about what happens. I mean, I've just read one, which I won't name, which was brilliant to read because it made me feel brilliant about my own writing. Um, <laughs> But you can, some of the sort of, uh, I would say more popular thrillers, but I don't think they tend to do that well. Sort of the unpopular thrillers, if you read some, they're, they're, they're readable. Hey, guys, it's important out this panel. Choose an unpopular book as your model. He just has this ever-growing stack of books next to his desk. He's like, all right, don't write that. <laughs> <laughs> just read bad books and you'll be a great writer in your own mind. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, I mean, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Character, then plot, then world. Those are the importance, and then magic is part of world. So for me, it's about okay. This is where I come across as a total literary snob, which I am. For me, it's about prose, basically. It's about language. It's about so a book which, and I don't necessarily mean literary prose, but a book which is written well and has the way its language is working, the way its prose is working. It will create the character, it will create the world, it will create vision. Voice, literary voice is... is, is yes, really yeah, that kind of, yeah, if it's a book is, if a book is written well, then the characters have a life. If the book is written well, then the world has a life. If the book is written well, then the book works. You can believe a lot, and you can forgive a lot, if the language, if the start, the if the book is written in such a way that you buy into, you you enter into it. I mean, it's actually rather what Angus was saying about hearing John Ronson's voice. If that voice is coherent and appearing to you, and you feel that that voice is talking to you, then you will give an awful lot about what's going on in the book. You will believe in the characters. You will believe in the world. You will believe in the mechanics of the plot in a way that if the book somehow just singing to you you just went that's what when people talk about character, what they mean is this really well written character intrusive narrative is i love it i love it i i want that that in a book i, I want to feel from the first line the author's voice coming through uh, and fantasy is quite it, sometimes it does that and sometimes it does a very sort of step back where it, things are happening i don't know how to describe it but but it's like there's no there's no barrier between you and the plot. Does that make sense? Where was it? There's an interesting There's different books, different styles of different yeah. books. So I I'm a huge fan of Brandon Sanderson actually because what he's doing is just so you know, he's he's the most amazing page turner. It is not people are very rude about his prose. I think justifiably, but my God, those books are page turners because they've just got there's something in the way they're written that just you cannot stop reading. It's just it just it just has that it has a voice it has a very very distinctive voice that somehow works and everything works within that what are your thoughts Matthew um, I think I'm with RJ really I think it's about people um I don't when it when it comes down to it you have to care about what's happening to the people in the book um and I think everything else is then in service of getting that message across in a clear and an exciting fashion um and that's that's for me sometimes where i feel that so magic systems do then tend to take over 
because it, if you're not careful, it becomes about how your magic works and not about how the people are actually interacting with it and what it's changing about their lives and the decisions it's forcing them to make. So, yeah, people all the time. I'll happily be heretical and say that um, if a book, ha if book's ideas are strong enough that that can overcome deficiencies in character. Like one of my favorite books is House of Leaves, which is this fantastic and really, really strange horror novel by um, Mark C. Danielowski. Um, I mean, that book, the characters in it, I could not, I, you know, there is a guy who makes films and his wife and their kids. And the, 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 sorry, the narrator in the footnotes has a bit more of a character, but even he is fairly, like, you know, thin. But the prose, the typography, and the ideas in it are so compelling that, like, you know, you can't really care about the characters that much because they're they're almost there to like you know, to wander around this house and look at things. But the house itself is so interesting, and the way the book tells the story and builds atmosphere is a, 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 more than complex for the characters. I mean, if you if you just purely want character, why are you doing fantasy? Given, like you, very lucrative. History takes a lot of research, Gareth. Oh, I know it does. Yeah. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I'm doing fantasy. I know what research yeah. takes. But I mean, you e even if you if character is your sort of, your, your sort of dominant interest, then you can use the magic system and the, the strangest of the world to throw new light on that. You can put the people. You put like your real characters into impossible situations, um, which is like the, I suppose the, the main benefit of having a, a, a magic in your fantasy. There is stuff that works with that. I've, I've just read Blood Meridian by Colin McCarthy, which is astounding, uh, and, and the, the characterization that is these are awful human beings and that's it, um, uh, and and it is purely the language in it that carries you through it. It's an astounding book, but I think. I still wanted there to be a person that I could like in it. <laughs> I couldn't. It's just horrendous. Yeah, I mean, as as a reader in a community of a lot of other readers, you know, I, I come across a majority of people saying that characters are the main things that drive them to read and finish a novel. Uh, if they can't engage with a character or characters uh within 50 to 75 pages then they give up and go to the next one now there are some that will just plow through a book even if they can't get engaged and i don't know why people do that because you know there's always so much life to live and so many books to read but uh you know i feel like world building you know and magic systems and you know plot points and so forth are kind of like the icing on the cake when it comes to to reading not just fantasy but science fiction and thrillers and so forth is that if you can't get engaged and feel for who you're reading about then nothing else really can save it now i'm kind of the same way <laughs> uh i mean you know if, if i can get in you know kind of not really entranced but if i can find a character that i'm like okay, I want to see this person succeed or I really want to see this person die, then I'm pretty much in, I'm in it for the long haul. Um, well, I, I didn't realize it was going to be dead silent when I was done. Um, <laughs> so uh, when, when using magic in a novel, would you rather use it subtly? Would you rather 
focus on something else and it just be intrusive? Or, I mean, again, does it really just kind of depend on the, the, the novel that you're wanting to, to write or the story you're wanting to bring out? I mean, you know, would you rather it be, you know, kind of like low fantasy where it's just intrusive and it's not really talked about, but as it progresses into maybe a series that it's kind of expanded upon and people are like, oh my gosh, there's, there's still magic around somewhere. (laughs) I kind of like um, having early feed stuff in there. So it's not clear what's going on or it's certainly not referenced as being magical but then as the further you get through the story the more you see that maybe some of those things you took as being quite mundane earlier on have actually got a bit of a magical core to them because i think it's it's one of those things that's quite nice particularly when you're building a new setting is you can ease the reader into it instead of going look here's magic while you're learning everything else learn about this too but as the reader gets more comfortable you can start going well that thing you saw over there that flash of light was more than a flash of light. That's a really awful example, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are elements in my books where I think a lot of the stuff around Marith, I think I was trying what exactly is going on with him and where, how far he has some kind of magical power. I always wanted to leave ambiguous. I wanted it to be, so one of the books I absolutely love is Mary Reno's Alexander Trilogy, and she is essentially writing, she's writing a historical novel, but of course she's writing it in a world that's actually saturated with a kind of magical, has a, there's a lot of science and rationalism, but there's also a deep magical core. She's writing about a person who appears to have believed on some deep psychological level that he was the son of a god, but also to believe deeply on some different psychological level that he had this great conflict with his human father, He's so, you know, he's caught between these two totally different senses of who his father is, both of which he appears to have believed. And he appears to have believed increasingly throughout his life that he was a god, he was himself a god. And how she writes about that, and she's not doing what a lot of historical novelists do, which is you have your protagonist who is the one rational, (laughs) one Western European scientific atheist mindset in a world where everyone else is really religious and weird and believes all this miracle crap. She's writing in a numinous world in which the people, many of the people, believe very, very strongly in the in the gods, and in fact, in the idea that Alexander is perhaps not simply a human, not a human being. And I wanted to write that ambiguity around some of the characters around Marek and what on earth is going on with some of this. So there's there's a scene in book two where I write a sea battle, and whether there are actually sea monsters involved or not is entirely ambiguous because it was that kind of. It was, that was quite influenced by Moby Dick, where actually there's a really lots of supernatural stuff in Moby Dick, but at the same time, it's a very rational scientific kind of whaling. It's just what what exactly is going on in a lot of places in Moby Dick is never entirely clear. But I also just wanted to go to town basically linguistically and aesthetically with massive magical explosions and massive magical battles and dragons and gods and a huge descriptions of just sublime magical wonder because that that's kind of what i live for that's <laughs> those moments where the world is just made so much huger and more intensely romantic and incredible and amazing than my own mundane reality and it it kind of, it's just kind of stitched together in the way that i mean the iliad is like that the iliad is iliad has stuff which is about 
very much about men in a war setting and obviously composed by and told in an environment where people are very familiar with war, where this is a very kind of realist, inverted commas, doing it again, where this is a very kind of down-to-earth account of life in a military camp. But at the same time, then you have gods involved. You have these kind of moments of that incredible moment where Achilles fights a river. And that, that just the absolute moment of sublime wonder that the world is made so vast and incredible. And then you go back to much more human level. Quite what's going on inside the there and I really that for me is what I was that was really what I was looking for, and that for me were really. I don't necessarily think you, you have to have magic for fantasy, I, I don't think the two are. I, I mean, you, you immediately think of the two as being linked, but I don't, I don't think they are, especially in the bone ships. That, that like Anna's saying, that's a world of myth, it's not, it's not real, there is magic that. The Galen, these bird creatures can control the wind, which is something that's useful for a world where it's all ships. But the world is not really about that. It's about their mythology, and they have the, these goddesses, and it's very hard. And, and it's about the creatures and this land, and how everything about this land has sculpted these people into being. I mean, they're, they're a monstrous society. What the things they do, but the fantasy in the in the book is the magic is probably the least interesting element and i'm never going to explain how these creatures can control the wind because of course it's, not. It's, <laughs> it's not important to the plot you don't need to know that it, it they can and that's part yeah. of the way their world works yeah. and maybe they can talk to these massive dragons that are coming back out of history uh, and it's this kind of resurgence it's this is a a world that's treated as if it's exactly it's real and it has a lot of sort of seafaring myths that i've stolen from Moby Dick and, and stuff like that, and, but um, the the fantasy element I would say is much less about magic than it is about just the sheer. I don't know if it's strangeness, just otherness. Yeah, it's the romantic. It's, it's romanticism. It's creating a yeah. romantic world. It's creating a world which is. It's creating this kind of incredibly romanticized world. That's that's that for me is actually the core of fantasy. That's what makes something fantasy. Mm -hmm. Absurd romanticization of the world that a rock is not a rock, it's the bones of a dragon. An old man is not an old man, he's an incredibly powerful sorcerer. It's that it's that romanticism, that kind of that layering of different possibilities. Um oh. I... Look on. Okay, I was gonna say, um <laughs> we put your hands on it. <laughs> <laughs> if we start raising hands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sorry. Can you, can you see my hand? Oh, there we go. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think the idea with with, with putting all the magic in—I I mean, I think it's nice to drip the magic in bit by bit and start off with you know a, a strange hedgehog and end up with a tsunami of saber-toothed tigers or something like that, you know, to increase it and to give that promise to the reader. In other words, just another sort of suspense device. But I was think, thinking about explaining the magic. Um, my first six books are all historical uh, fantasy fiction, and I think when you're writing it into the real world, I think it's. It, there's a greater need to explain the magic, to explain how it could have happened in our real world. Because there is magic in our world in that um, flocks of birds and schools of fish all move together in such a way in their hundreds of thousands that can't possibly be based on anything apart from some weird... Um, it's fluid dynamics, it's based on fluid dynamics. It's, it's fluid dynamics. It's fluid dynamics. It's um, magic they work in the same way that atom, that more, individual molecules of water do. I mean, well, that's a lovely theory, but it's not proven by any way, is it? 
I've got computer modelling. What you're doing? I mean, having a you know having a quantum physics that explains stuff like that. I love reading stuff about really deep physics because um, it's that that completely insane modelling of explanation of how the world works. Like, yes, and it's a lovely theory, but actually it's magic. They haven't got it quite right. <laughs> uh, and so, I mean, if you love to romanticise the world, you don't want to explain absolutely everything, and that's one of the things that's driving the romantic. Um, so we do have magic in the world. It's um, We also have psycholinks done through generations of animals, for example. That's how you know a, a baby deer knows left in the woods alone will survive uh, because it knows what to eat. Whereas leave a baby human in the woods on its own, and, well, you go to prison because it'll die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think you know, but, uh, yeah. Uh, there are three ones: a drip magic, and b there is magic in the world, and c that I think the more close to our own world that your world that you're writing about is, the more you have to explain your magic um, in an acceptable I, manner. I always think that writing is the nearest to actual magic you can get because you, you sit there with a blank screen and you. Yes, Mr. Moore. Not <laughs> 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 the hair for it anyway, just to get the beard. <laughs> <laughs> But it is, and, I, and I've always thought that it's just this, this music is the other one that I think is even more impressive, that you can create waves in the air that will affect you emotionally. It's just, when, you're, when I sit and think about that, it sends me a bit dotty, and I'm, <laughs> I've got a head start as it is. But um, so there is, there is these things that we can't explain on a really emotional level, that we can explain on quite a boring technical level. and magic exists somewhere in between yeah i mean i think that kind of notion of writing is magic arjuna we'll have to talk about this at some point apparently because we keep we always end up talking about this but that notion of writing is magic and i mean if you look at a lot of if you look at say norse mythology and runes and words of power you know in a lot of cultures the notion of words of power languages of power yeah. rune symbols that, that's at the basis of what magic is. So if you look at kind of I mean, the Earthsea books, the notion of language and words is huge. That, that's what underpins their magic. R. Scott Baker has people, has people singing, has these chants, different chant, magical chants. A lot of magic systems are essentially underpinned by language. And I think that's, that, that for Knowing me makes... the name it. of a thing. Yeah. Yes, naming the thing. thing Actually, Earthsea is, is a great example of a book which has a magic system, but manages to for largely retain the sort of the numinous and strangers of the world, yeah. which is a yeah. very sort of, you know, fine thread or uh, fine line to dance on. She does very well. Yeah, no, she has that <laughs> lovely bit in Tahanu, which is essentially, coming back to romanticism, Tahanu is essentially a domestic novel about a woman bringing up a child, but it's completely high fantasy because it has this incredibly romantic sort of, Nothing happens in Tahanu, basically. So it's just, it, it's Irish pastoral, basically. It's just, <laughs> it's no different to Edna O'Brien. It just has, has, and actually, actually, no, Brian has incredible magic stuff in it, can't he? But, um, anyway, but no, so there's this lovely line where Tenor asks one of the, the old wise women in the village, how does she know that Ged is a mage? And you get this, she goes about, or oh, deep calls to deep. And eventually Tenor just says, very frankly, essentially to the reader, no one knows. She has no idea. They're just coming up with this, they're just muff, mumbling the same old kind of, oh, well, it's magic, I believe, because it's impossible stuff that we know very much from our own world. Is that kind of way of of just completely obscuring the fact that I've got a clue? Just does. <laughs> and I love that the way she just says that, but in such a way that it makes absolute sense. 
doesn't destroy the illusion. Matthew, what are your thoughts? Um, I like putting people on the spot. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's all right because I'm not sure I have any earlier. Really, I, I think yeah, the, it's all magic is an excellent vehicle for applying and adding doubt into your world. And if you want your characters to doubt the setting that they're in, there's no final way of doing that. Because as Anna said, there is a romanticization that comes with that. It makes the world feel bigger and grander than it is. Um, and that's just a fantastic way of getting all that into there. But again, your characters have to perceive it the way you want the reader to perceive it, because otherwise you get a strange break in it. Because the reader goes, well, I understand, I understand how all this works. It's not a murmuration of birds. It's uh, molecular behavior or whatever. But your characters in the world think it's one or the other. Then that's when you get the distance. And I think that's where you lose that uh, immersion that you should always be trying to get to, particularly when it's something that doesn't exist in our world. You, it has to be as credible to your characters and therefore to the reader as the fact that things fall when you drop them. It's on, it's that basic almost. Yeah, no, it's that almost going back and it's kind of, it is that romanticism that I was trying to, that, that child sense of the world, the, the child sense of the world is utterly magical, is utterly kind of numinous. All those wonderful stories that everyone can tell about the child who completely certain that Father Christmas didn't exist, obviously it was mommy and daddy, but the, the Easter Bunny, the Easter Bunny absolutely exists. You know, that kind of weird, <laughs> some things you can child rationalize and some things just they just don't and um and actually i mean to bang on about scott baker again and again but the way he does he has two different conceptual systems so he has high magic he has his mages he has his schools of magery and they sing and by singing they can fly through the air and blow things up and it, it, it's high magic but then because what he's writing you also have technology the people living in his world don't know it's not magic so you have and there's part of the fun in is trying to work out what stuff is the heron sphere there's huge amounts of debate in scotland baker fan groups about what the heron sphere is theory is and the general conclusion spoiler alert is it's a laser super laser and you have what's clearly an atomic bomb going on and you have descriptions of radiation poisoning but of course that to the read to the the people within the world that's magic They've got this other magic that to the reader is magic and it's that absolute balancing of magic high magic that is magic and this other stuff that we think is magic but you as a reader know isn't magic is magic, and they're trying to work out what exactly technology is that's doing it and that's just absolutely beautiful the way he just balances that so perfectly see there's there's interesting dichotomy there i haven't read the book so it's sort of speculating you've got technology which is saying like you know isn't magic, but it, it seems like them to magic because they don't understand how it works. And you've got high magic, which is magic. But the question is like, you know, if there's a system to the high magic, isn't that just a technology that they don't understand? And like, you know, is magic just the thing you don't understand? Yeah, so I, I mean, so actually, I completely did Bradley P. Brodu in about this a couple of years ago when we were on a panel. And we are talking about, we are actually talking about maps. And I said to him at the panel, so if you draw a map of your world, is it a flat, a flat mythical map of a place that doesn't exist and the moon is is a moon goddess and the yeah. sun is a rock or the eye of a god or a massive dragon or the daughter of the sun you know or whatever and if you sail to the end of the world and you've talked about you know we'll go to the end of the world and there's that great big ball of ice and beyond that dragon giant would that all actually happen or is this a ball in space that was formed from a great pile of cosmic dust coming together 
And the moon's actually the moon and the sun's actually a sun. And if these guys went on and developed technology, they could eventually get rocket technology. You could end up writing science fiction set in the same world. And he was just, ah! because he never thought about that. And as soon as he started thinking about that, that question of, is your world a real world? Yeah. So is Gareth, is your world a real world? And is it just a ball of rock in space with the sun and a moon and one day they could get technology? Or is it magical? Is it's it... That weird mental stumbling block for us though, isn't it? Because to us, magic is, is, is magic. But if you lived in, in like the 12th century, then going to see your saint's relics to cure yourself of leprosy, it, if that's magic, but not then, that is just a thing that is absolutely real. And, and the, yeah. the, it's really weird trying to get your head over that into that place where you're, you are them and it's just the world. So for them is the world, so yeah, in medieval, in, if you look at medieval cosmology and you know Jerusalem is the center of the world and the world is this kind of flat thing, is that real? Is, is that real or is the world actually a ball of rock? And once you start thinking about that in your own world, you start feeling, it actually bothers me. It keeps me awake. <laughs> when they talk about the stars, what are, what are the stars? This is why I advise everybody never think. Just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> is it a practical thing about people acting as if the world is round or flat and it's fine until they fall off the edge of it because they think it's one way and it's not the other? Is it? it, it it's put far more artfully in the original, but it, it, it's that, it's the, it's people's beliefs actually, it's how much impact they have on perception of the world, isn't it? And magic can be a huge part of that because it fills in the gaps between the thing you can see and the thing you're fairly certain or you hope will happen and the bit in the middle is the magic that gets you to that place, even when it doesn't. <laughs> and actually, not magic is just a nostalgia. It's that, if you think about... What a lot of mythology is, mythology, a lot of mythology is essentially people of the world now, which is a fallen world. It's in sort of Greek mythology that we live now in the world, which is even possible. We live in a world of clay and mythology is talking about the age of heroes, talking about the age of iron, the age of bronze, the age of silver, the age of gold, golden age being the age of the gods. Most mythology has this sense we live in a fallen world and the past was better then. And a lot of what magic is, is that way of talking about a nostalgic world where, you know, the classic fantasy, the ruins of a city and the city was built magic or with technology that we do not now have. And these, you know, these buildings that were built and we cannot understand how they were built. The blocks of stone were too big to be raised. That, that kind of that sense of a world in which there was a better world, there was a more glorious world, there was a world where men were as gods, And now that's gone. And we can only look back with awe. That's a huge part of what magic is. It's trying to look, it's looking at the world as as once was better, once we were as gods. I do wonder magic. sometimes whether magic is the invention of that confident bloke you've all met at some point. <laughs> you've been, how, how was this this thing built? And he went, "Oh mate, yeah, dragons, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah." My friend David, he saw the dragons, and there was a bloke with a pointy hat, and and he just told him what to do. Uh, because that's the, the essence of all our things is trying it is we build up these myths for things we don't know to explain them and then and then we get explanations yeah, other than that magic is the longing that we all have for the world to be greater than it is magic is the longing that the world was greater than it is or the world could be greater than it was and our lives could be greater than this I believe him when he says it 
it's one of those things I quite like out, actually just out in the real world. It's why I like old places ranging back to sort of Neolithic hill forts to castles to the London underground. And I know why all of those things are there. And I know the rational process by which they came about. But I like to stand there and think about what the other things could be <laughs> around it. And there is a connection there. The things that I have no proper connection to at all, the different bits of the country and, and all the rest of it. I don't know the details of the history. I just know that the history is there. But being able to get, now this is the place where this battle was fought or this is the place where this terrible mystical thing happened. That's that's really powerful. And I think it's one of the things I try to bring through into my writing is just that idea that for some people, that thing that I'm looking at, this big collection of Oxford tiles and the half moon arch over the top of uh, Mornington Crescent Station or whatever, everything that I'm thinking in my head that that could be, there's a place where that is real. And that that's what that's part of what magic is. It's about making that making something special out of the mundane, even when you know it's not true. And then translating that back into a world where it can be, that's that's the best kind of wish fulfillment because it can't be magical in the real world. I can't make it magical there, but I can even write it down and then maybe someone will believe that it is in this other place. That's wonderful. Yeah, no, I mean, we all think as writers, we, we all sort of live on an edge between something more numinous or maybe we indulge it because there's, there's a feeling you get like, like Matthew was saying, Matthew was saying you, when you stand in a cathedral, and it's the same feeling I get when I stand in a, in a wood or a forest, that there is this, this this feeling of contact with something slightly other. Well, you, you, you're and, almost and going, like, has... what if, or like, you know, only, yeah. or like, you know, if, if only, or could this, or... To, to write, you need to like, you know, ask questions of the world around you and see what, like, what, what could be twisted and made different. I always feel like I'm reaching for that feeling that that, that see that's where it comes back to prose because that's what I mean about prose a pro in a book prose is a good prose is giving you that is conveying that experience what quality of a book that really brings it alive for me is the language can can impart a part of that astonishing feeling so I mean the waste the sections of the wasteland set in the stuff about sort of London Bridge where you're Elliot is conveying that numinous feeling, the psychogeography of the of just through a couple of lines on a page. And it's that, that for me is what makes is what makes magic in the book or makes a magical system or a magical conception of the world within the book. It's the use of language to just somehow cross that reality to give you in in printed words on a page or words that are being read out on an audiobook, that feeling somehow in some incredibly weird way that is magic, essentially. Angus, you've been quiet. Thoughts? I think it's painkillers, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was just watching. I'm just thinking, you are no. wasted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm really out of it. Um, but no, I mean, I'm enjoying the chat very much and I'm agreeing with pretty much every, I mean, basically these panels, you agree with what everybody says, then you plug your book, that's, that's how they work. I mean, I was going to pop in with some cryptozoology. I think, I mean, I think I love the concept of, of, of you know, magic showing us more and there being more so. I think we do have magic in our world. I'd like to stress that point a bit more. I'm a big fan of cryptozoology. Um, I once spent five days looking for Bigfoot with the Bigfoot Research Organization in Olympic National Park on the top left-hand corner of the USA. 
Um, and there are others as the Megalodon shark near the Philippines. What did you find? Stop the panel. Oh, well, I mean, Bigfoot doesn't <laughs> exist. Obviously, it's, it's not one, it's a species, because how could just one exist? That would be nuts. Um, Bigfoot is a 9 to 12 foot tall ape, uh, Gigantopithecus, it's known as. It's meant to have died out 30,000 years ago in China, but it didn't. It crossed the land bridge and now exists all through the Americas um, in the wooded areas, particularly in uh, places like Olympic National Park, where genuinely it's impossible to walk into those woods. The scrub is impenetrable. Um, and the idea that a large animal could exist there is really quite believable when you go there. Um, I mean, no bones have ever been found. People quote this as a reason for Bigfoot not existing. But if you give the Bigfoot, uh, if you suspend your human arrogance for a second and give the animal <laughs> the intelligence to hide its own bones, then maybe it could hide its own bones. Um, and I was with people. I was with you know, a doctor from, um, from the University of Los Angeles there who was there with sound recording equipment. And we sat there, you know, in the deep, 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 deep woods. Um, and several people on the trip said they saw a Bigfoot. And there's one point when I clinked a beer bottle, um, it was about my sixth, so it's me, sorry, <laughs> um, against a stone there. And we heard an, the same noise repeated just down the hill. And there was nothing down the hill apart from the impenetrable scrub. And then one of the guys was going, try that again. Um, they were all very, you know, um, cool Americans, all Americans. Macho. Um, yeah, I, no, I'm a massive Americanophile, whatever the right word is. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I tapped it three times and the Bigfoot responded with three taps. And yeah, all these guys had stories of having seen a Bigfoot. And then on the last night, I was sleeping in a tent with a lady who went for a pee in the morning and came back and said she had seen a Bigfoot while going to the loo. And she was, um, she was an academic at the University of Seattle. And I, you know, why would she lie? Huh. <laughs> I think I remember briefly so, talking yeah, about this I mean, on our I'm, podcast chat, but yeah, I'm glad you're, you're going a little more in depth. <laughs> uh, just just, yeah, no, just no, clarify. And no, I haven't seen any in um, Alabama. <laughs> yeah. Just to clarify, you, you clinked a beer bottle on the ground and you heard the same noise down, down the hill. Yeah. yeah are, we to, uh, are we to assume that Bigfoot had his own beer bottle then? <laughs> yeah. yeah that, I mean, there were, there were footsteps around us. And he had something that could replicate the sound, maybe one of his huge fingernails, because they are renowned. They kill you if you, if you annoy them. Um, it's another reason no one's ever found one, because... Uh, they, they get annoyed by that. <laughs> um, they, don't, they don't exist anymore, that's why. <laughs> yeah, they stomp you into a greasy spot. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then you can't find those bones either. <laughs> yeah. The very yeah, scrubby like Wendigo yeah. tried to lure you downhill to eat you. That's what he was. Come come, come here, I've got beer. <laughs> yeah. Or, well, or if, 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 or if you're American, you know, you, you've got Jack Link's jerky, because that's, uh, that, that's, the, that's the thing that they, they put the Sasquatch uh, in, the, in the Jack Link's commercial. So if you've got jerky, then uh, you're more than likely going to have a Bigfoot in your area. The <laughs> <laughs> squatch meat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I love that idea. And, and there was an ox found in Vietnam, I think, in 1992. And I say found, you know, basically white people discovered, you know, knew about it. But there, there was an ox unknown to Western science called the Vu Quang ox until 1992 in the jungles of Vietnam and Cambodia. So it's possible for a large animal to hide out. Um, and there's so, Makolo yeah. and Bembe, of course. In the Congo, um, yeah, no, which is another... this, comes back... this comes back to this kind of notion that I, I really believe all this stuff. I, I don't, but I do at the same time. I really, really believe yeah. all this stuff. I believe all of this you stuff. You mind about the birds as well. I, I yeah, absolutely bloody. do not believe in ghosts, but I have seen one and I can't explain <laughs> that. <laughs> and I, just, I, just, I don't, but I, I've seen something completely inexplicable. I can't. 
uh, there's no, I don't believe it. I do not for a second believe in ghosts. But I did see say? something, and it's so <laughs> weird. Oh, I'm he said hi. <laughs> <laughs> he said, hey, I don't believe in you, but you can come hang out for a bit. <laughs> I, I, I saw a figure in, in the back of a garden when I was visiting a friend, and it walked straight through a fence up into a field. Uh, and it completely freaked me out at the time. And then about two weeks later, we found out somebody had died in that field. Okay, so was this during the daytime or at night? When no, you it was saw at it? night. Okay. It was at night. It was during the winter. It was snowing, which is why I could see the figure because all the light was reflected up from the ground. And they were wearing a blue anorak. And I, I just remember seeing skin up. There's a boy in your back garden and he just walked out through a fence. But it, I don't believe in ghosts. <laughs> but I absolutely I, I was, did. It's really weird. We're strange creatures. Um, I, I once woke up being held down by ghosts. Being big country All right, We're going to have to have a completely separate part of this. <laughs> <laughs> because I have many questions. That, apparently, but I don't want to know it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that explanation because I, I have it quite often. And, um, it, yeah, it, no, that's. Um, so there's yeah. a particular. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a particular word yeah, for my. Yeah. I had a boyfriend who had it a lot, and he'd wake up screaming, and yeah, there'd be all kinds of. It's really sleep paralysis. Really yeah, yes, I, I know there's an explanation, yeah. but I don't want to know the explanation. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I had to research it and train myself out of it when I was really ill because it, I would get trapped in a, a sort of cycle of dreams where something monstrous was coming for me, and I would wake up and put on the lights, but the lights wouldn't work. And then I realized this thing was coming for me. And then I realized it was a dream and I would wake up and put on the lights, but the lights wouldn't work and just go round and round. Oh. Absolutely terrifying. To come back to, the, to come back to the top of the panel, yeah. that kind of, say writing a character has that kind of experience, but in the world of the book, it's not clear whether that's, there's an ex, whether there's the rational explanation of sleep paralysis or whether that's the result of magic or a curse or whatever. That kind of, if you imagine writing characters, say having that experience in the in in the ruins of our city that was created by magic by our place or whatever, you know, that kind of drawing on your own experiences of stuff like that, that is, you know, it's pretty clear that sleep paralysis is often, is a rational explanation for a lot of stuff. Oh, it's a big foot. <laughs> <laughs> Having that kind of, you know, a lot of people kind of argue sleep paralysis is an explanation for vampirism. That um, mm. that terrifying picture, the nightmare that's often used in pictures of gothic yeah, horror, the woman with the thing on her chest, yeah. the demon on her chest, the goblin thing on her chest. Yeah. It's often used as what well, sleep paralysis explains vampirism, or sleep paralysis explains this kind of weird stuff. There's weird stuff in southern Italy about men at night who go out and have night battles. Oh, the Benedante, isn't it? The, yes, yes. The werewolves we we go to hell fighting with fennel sticks. Yes, all this kind of weird stuff, and a lot of this is often or the, the night hag, the nightmare. Yeah. A lot of this is is supposedly rationally explained by sleep paralysis. And having that that sense of this is perhaps a personal experience you've had, or you've read someone else's personal account, personal account of it, and working that into your narrative as it being slightly unclear what exactly is going on, things like that are really, really fascinating and can really give a kind of richness to the way you're talking about weirdness and magic and monsters and things which are kind of supernatural experiences it's a really 
Okay, plug the 14 times again, reading that kind of weird stuff. It's a really, really good way of enriching your world a bit and getting a sense of what it might be like. I'll have to, I don't know if you can see my bookcase there, um, but the whole, oh, you can't, but it, it's just full of 14 times. This, but, um, Have you got the copy with my story, with my article in then? Somewhere, there's no, a some article. No, I, I found <laughs> five years that it was recycling the same things. I stopped for a bit. Um, I'll find it though. But do you think there is a a kind of two sides of coming at, at fantasy where there's like a hard magic and creating your world in quite a sort of scientific -y type way, and then and there's the other side which is more myth and folklore. Well, the, the, people always say like fantasy and science fiction as sort of like the two branches of speculative, speculative fiction. So I think there is a, a sort of a science fictional approach to fantasy where one tries to as a, systematize it and basically like you know, create this plausible alternate world. And then That's you can sort of then there's the old mythological approach where basically you're like you're know, taking old stories and updating them or just trying to build something that feels like an old story. Um yeah, I mean, are are they entirely different genres, or are they just sort of like you know, two approaches trying to get to get to, to get to the whole experience of the numinous, where like you know, you can you can you build an alternate world so coherent and plausible and believable that you can then insert something impossible into it, and it feels like you're like seeing that impossible thing in the real world. Can you build? Can you build enchantment? <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, so guys, so we're uh, we're coming up at about an hour fifteen. So, kind of the last thing I want to do is, since you guys are all not able to do like in person events and so forth, thanks to the lovely coronavirus, um, I want everybody to have an opportunity to kind of plug a book, whether it's upcoming, just released, previously released, maybe it's your last release. So everybody can kind of have a minute or so to kind of plug your book, kind of tell everybody what it's about if they haven't read it. Uh, so Gareth, we'll start with you. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it could be telemarketing there or something. <laughs> um, no, I mean, the book is The God of Prayer <laughs> and Shadow Saint. Um, if you're really, really into magic systems, then A, yes, there's plenty of systemization in there. Um, I also do role playing games, which where magic systems are an entirely different kettle of fish. And actually, like, you know, <laughs> there, there actually is a system and involves dice rolling. Um, the other thing, actually, I was, I was going to bring up and I'll plug now um, Tim Clear, who does a fantastic writing podcast, did this Twitter thread apparently two years ago, which I'll link in um, the comments something, where he did basically like, you know, one like equals one interesting magic system. And that's a fantastic thread to read because he just, keeps churning out ideas and if you're st ever stuck for a magic system or a, a weird bit of sorcery for your books there's fantastic ideas in there and uh, yeah I'm MythOlder on Twitter and everywhere and Garhanrahan.com and I don't know I don't have a Patreon or a SoundCloud <laughs> so <laughs> I have other things to plug <laughs> RJ um, I'm <laughs> <laughs> I'm RJ Barker. This is my um my latest book, The Bone Ships, which um it says brilliant by Robin Hobb. That, that's, <laughs> that's the best bit so far. I can stop now. Um and it's kind of mythic and, and big ships and strange lots of strange creatures and dragons the size of cities. One dragon the size of a city. 
Um, I like it. Um, and I'm I would hope so. on <laughs> but you better search in RJ Barker on Twitter and I talk a lot of nonsense there as well as here and, and everywhere. But that, yeah, buy this, you'll like it probably. And I also I recommend the Winded Kingdom series by RJ. It's it was his first trilogy about Orbit. So yeah, if you haven't read it, yeah. read it. Uh, <laughs> they're they're over there they're more traditionally fantasy, I think, where this is more shippy fantasy but not in the way and bony right yeah shippy and bony and uh, that just sounds a lot on very hard yeah <laughs> all right angus um i've had two trilogies i've got a copy of yours is... here if you want to talk about it <laughs> oh yeah he's asked my book yeah um, <laughs> that one is um age ryan which is iron age britain and uh saying what really happened when caesar invaded because of course there was magic around in those days it's not really fantasy because it's true including the tsunami um and um you die when you die uh is the first book in my west of west trilogy which is vikings in america because they really were there uh, and they really did get further than than people think um but there probably weren't you know giant monsters and savages tigers and all that sort of thing that i've put in um the west of west trilogy it's basically it's epic it's tragic it's funny it's a group of vikings crossing america pursued by badass warrior women um they were out to get them in this strange and dangerous world uh and i'm writing more stuff now but you know that'll come i'm on twitter you should probably follow rj rather than me he's much more interesting and funny on twitter than i am um <laughs> and yeah i don't tweet much um yeah, watch your space. I've got some small stuff to announce soon, but not quite yet. Okay, that's it. Matthew? Uh, so, yeah, Legacy of Ash, which you can see. I'm not going to reach back and try and get it like everyone else has done because uh, I'll be fall off my chair and that would be horrible. <laughs> um, which is magical tale of kingdoms at war, lots of politics, lots of scheming, but it's a world that's generally forgotten its magic and forgotten its gods. Um, yeah, I guess who starts to show up when everything goes horribly, horribly wrong. Lots, lots of lots of big epic fantasy, lots of uh, characters to fall in love with, hopefully, anyway. Uh, daring do battles. It's good fun stuff. Uh, second one, Legacy of Steel, is out in November. The electronic proofs are on my desk or sort of hidden in my computer on my desk at the moment. So, yeah. Did I say September? I meant November. Did I? What did I say? Anyway, later this year. November. Um, but, yeah, it's... Great, great fun to write. Hopefully, it's great fun to read. David seems to like it, so we're probably okay. So, <laughs> Anna. Hi, I'm yeah, I'm Anna Smith. These are these are mine. The broken knives. Oh, that's the second one. <laughs> <laughs> Anna, how to stack first? Um, really yeah, <laughs> So we're described as um, this gripping fantasy, exquisitely written by by Adrian Tchaikovsky. And a masterwork of dark fantasy by Nightmarish Conjurings, which I mean, I don't that that's like like my life over basically. I mean, like that, that's that's the pinnacle we describe as a night, uh, masterwork of dark fantasy. Um, you know, they're mythical, intensely lyrical, not an easy read. Um, mind saying he's enjoying them the second time round. Now he's actually not trying to read them in skim read them. I actually understand what's going on now. <laughs> you cannot skim read them, and they are. Yeah, kind of uh, lyrical, poetical, described as nihilistic, but they're romantic nihilistic. They're ever absolutely romantic. 
writing my absolutely romantic conception of the world whilst also understanding that the world is becoming realistic because I mean hey look around us guys um, <laughs> <laughs> there ain't no justice in life ain't there we're really boosting the <laughs> no there are I mean they are intensely they are about love they are about beauty they are about the world as a numinous wonderful astonishing place that you find someone you love and when you see something you love just hang on to it and hang on to it because as we are seeing at the moment the world really isn't fair um yeah no there i am intensely proud of them the third one i am has sacrifice i kind of feel like i never write another word that would have been enough um i have written some other words i have a short story coming out in a anthology called lost gods at some point this year i think it's been slightly a victim of the but that the story short story in that I'm intensely proud of. It's a, essentially a story about being a silky, being a kind of, it's a kind of, in a really glib way, it's a Me Too story. It's it, it's my right attempting to write about being a silky and also, of course, at the moment, being a woman at the, experiencing life at the moment, because if you're a mother, if you're a woman with children at the moment, life is very strange and very difficult. And yeah, so that will be coming out at some point, at some point this year. Fantastic. So, uh, what's that? I was just going to say, I suppose, I tweet as Cream of Grim, Grim Dark, although I'm barely tweeting or going on Facebook at all at the moment because I can't face the rules. I understand. I've spoken to people outside my own household for probably about two weeks now because I, I cannot face the world. <laughs> Well, everybody uh, that tuned in and everybody here, just thank you all so much for, for taking the time out of your day to, uh, to tune in and to, to chat about fantasy. It's been, it's been an awesome experience. Um, I've read all of the works by each author here, and I can highly recommend every single one of them. They're all phenomenal. Uh, they're all out from orbit, which also helps. You just have to go to one website. Um, but uh, but just thank you guys for being here. Uh, I hope y'all have had a good time. I hope everybody that's tuned in has, has enjoyed this chat. Uh, coming up at, in just about 10 minutes, we'll have a live reading from uh, Jonathan Wood, a.k.a. John Collins. Uh, he's going to be reading from his book, Fool's Gold, which is the Dragon Lords number one. Also another Orbit author, um, <laughs> which should just be OrbitCon. Um, but uh, just thank you all again, and uh, maybe maybe we'll see if we can do this again at some point. We'll see. <laughs> David, thank Thanks, you David. so much for organizing this. Thank Absolutely. Thank you. Enjoy the rest Bye. of your weekend. Bye. 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 <laughs>